1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, verse number 1 begins this way. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. So as we've studied through First Thessalonians, we've noticed a theme that seems to be reoccurring, uh, where in chapter number 2 and chapter number 3, and now again in chapter number 4, it begins with some practical teaching, some practical exhortation, and then it ties into this common thread that goes, is woven throughout this book, of the rapture of the church, of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, I'd remind you that the second coming of the Lord Jesus has two aspects to it, or two facets to it. Uh, and they are respectively designated in these two books in this way. The first uh, book of First Thessalonians deals with the rapture of the church. That is when the Lord Jesus will appear in the clouds to rapture or to catch up His bride unto Himself, the church, uh, those that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Second Thessalonians is, uh, is occupied with the thought of the rupture of the world. In other words, the seven-year tribulation period that will then culminate in the visible, glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ to uh, throw down His foes, to set up His kingdom. Uh, and so understanding the distinction between these two things is key to understanding the Bible's teaching about the second coming. As we've moved through First Thessalonians, we have uh, kept in mind the practical impact of the truth of the imminent return of Lord Jesus upon believers. I'll say again to you that I believe one of the key defining qualities of the early New Testament church was their fervent, sincerely held, passionate belief that Christ could come at any moment. We'll see that in the text tonight. But I think this was the, the thing that distinguished them from much of the church today. And I think that the more sincerely we hold this truth, the more our church is going to look like an early New Testament church in power and in compassion and in witness, in testimony, in labor, in service, and in purity. So there's not very many things that Paul has to deal with at the church at Thessalonica. But there are a few, and, and one of them is a theological issue, and that will be touched on some in this chapter. Uh, but then there are some moral issues or some things that deal with the practical Christian life. And that's what he deals with in these first 12 verses. Paul had remained in Thessalonica long enough to see many people saved and to teach his new converts the essentials of Christianity. He taught them what they should believe as Christians, and he taught them how they should behave as Christians. He even taught them eschatology, the study of end-time things. And often that's not a subject that would be considered vital to the daily maintenance of the Christian life, but Paul evidently thought otherwise. 
The truth about the second coming of Christ is intended to be a spur to holy living, an essential and integral part of the development of Christian character and conviction. The hope of the Lord's near return and the prospect of our being rebuked or rewarded at the judgment seat should motivate us to live godly lives. You know, that's what John said in 1 John chapter number 3. He said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And that's a very devotional exposition of the return of the Lord Jesus. He then says this in verse 3, Every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So Paul evidently believed that this truth of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus would greatly inform the way that we live our lives. And he speaks to the church of Thessalonica uh, about his past teachings to them, what he had shared with them, and and how they were to continue that course. In verse 1 he says, Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. In this verse we see what was committed to these saints. We can be sure that Paul had taught them how to study the Old Testament Scriptures in light of Calvary and of the two advents of Christ. He had taught them how to rightly divide the word of truth. He might not have had time to give them a thorough theological education, but he had taught the essentials so that they could walk such as to please God. They were responsible now for what had been committed unto them. The word that's used there for beseech is the word parakaleo, and it's used of a beggar that's asking for alms. The word for exhort is aratio, and it means literally to call someone aside and to appeal to them. Both of these taken together gives the idea of begging and urging. It's like Paul was saying, we're begging you, we're urging you, we're pleading with you uh, to continue walking in these truths. And I would say this, that what we believe uh, is going to determine how we behave. Oftentimes, the converse is what's trumped in society, that, that uh, you know, doctrine is secondary uh, to dedication or to action, but that's not the case in the Word of God. What you believe is going to affect how you behave and how you live. I've often said that there is such a thing as theological consequence. And what I mean by that is if I believe A, that leads me to believe B, which consequently leads me to believe C. Now, this is true regarding a body of dogma, right? There are certain... Uh, thoughts and, and, and doctrines that you could hold that are just incongruent with other things. It's irrational to believe this and to hold this other belief as well. But you know that's true about the way we live too. And we see that at the church at Thessalonica. Their confusion concerning the imminent return of the Lord Jesus, their confusion concerning what all of that meant had caused them to uh, loosen some of their convictions and some of their standards. So we see what was committed to these saints. And then we see what was commanded of them. Verse 2, he says, For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. It's good to emphasize that word, commandments. He reminds them, moreover, uh, what had been commanded unto them, what they were required of. You know, some Christians seem to be content with the bare fact of salvation. And salvation is a glorious thing. But it does not seem to have dawned on them that there are commandments that accompany Christianity. And I don't mean we have to work our way to heaven or maintain our salvation. But certainly God saved us, not just to give us a seat in heaven, but to change the way that we live. Some seem to think that as long as they're saved, that's all that matters, that all of the rest is optional. These things are not optional at all. They're specifically commanded throughout the various New Testament epistles. They're obligations to attend a true profession of faith in Christ. God-given aids to holy living. Doing these things is our duty. 
Uh, sometimes people have a tendency to view obedience to the Word of God as just being sort of the, the jurisdiction or territory of super-Christian overachievers. You probably in school, you would have called them goody-two-shoes or teacher's pets, right? People that really want to impress God, they obey the Word of God. But the rest of us, we can just be saved and be satisfied, and that's all that it takes. But the reality is that God has called and commanded all of us to a higher plane of living. Uh, we're never called to be saved and nothing else. You won't find an example in Scripture where God tells anybody, you're saved now, you're on your way to heaven, now live any way that you want to. Now again, let me affirm abundantly clear, I'm not talking about uh, keeping your salvation. We're, we don't keep our salvation, we're kept by the power of God under that day. I'm not talking about uh, saving your salvation, uh, maintaining your salvation. All that's done by the work of God. He saves us, He keeps us, He carries us to heaven. And it's true, a person can get saved and then never live a day for the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will not go back on His promise that He made to them. He will save them and save them indeed. But how sad it would be if that was our perspective of Christianity. That all it is is to get saved, get my ticket to heaven, and then tell God goodbye and one day I'll see Him again. That's not what God has called us to do. We do these things not because we are under the law, but rather because we are under grace. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Lester Olaf used to say, uh, you know, I do all the drinking I want to. He said, I do all the gambling I want to. I, I do all the womanizing I want to. He said, the difference is when God saved me, He changed my want to. In other words, He, he transformed him from the inside out. And not to say that Lester Olaf wasn't flesh and bones like you and me. Sure, he was tempted by things, but he said, now I have a new man within me that desires the things of God. And I simply have to listen to him and allow him to have his will and his way in me. So we see in verses 1 and 2 the mighty potential of the believer in light of these truths. And then we see our moral purity being emphasized. Upon his return from Thessalonica, Timothy likely reported to Paul privately that a degree of immorality was still evident among the Thessalonian Christians. This shouldn't really be a surprise to us. The Greek culture that they were immersed in gave wide approval to all forms of sexual misbehavior. The idea that any kind of extramarital sex was wrong was quite, quite foreign to the Greek mind. Conventional morality saw nothing wrong in having affairs, committing sodomy, or indulging in premarital and extramarital affairs. Prostitution was legalized, and the state's brothels' profits were often used to build pagan temples. Our own social norms, indeed, are fast degenerating into those of ancient Greece. Paul's warnings against immorality are as needful today as they were in his day, and they sound just as strange to our contemporaries as they did to his early Greek converts. Sexual purity is not all that sanctification entails, but it certainly is a vital part of it. I told you there were probably several issues, not a lot, but some things that were severe things that Paul was dealing with. And evidently one of those things is that they still didn't have a clear biblical concept of what moral, uh, physical purity meant. And so he goes on to say in verse number 3, For this is the will of God, even, <coughs> excuse me, your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Paul mentions here uh, that immorality is a sin. Uh, and let me just say, immorality is a sin. <laughs> I know there's nobody in this room that disagrees with me saying that, but... Seems like it's said so rarely nowadays, it's good to just say it. Speak it out into the ether somehow. Uh, maybe if aliens are real, one day this, uh, you know, uh, radio wave will reach them somewhere and they'll repent. I doubt that. But, uh, you know, I think it's a good thing to say that. Uh, so he talks about their moral purity and immorality, and he speaks of it in three ways relating to the Trinity. The first he speaks is that immorality is a sin against God the Father. He says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. 
In this, he reveals the need for personal sanctification in our life. Uh, sanctification basically has two aspects. The word means to be pure or to be set aside. And both of those definitions inform uh, both the condition and the call of every believer. And this, by the way, is true of uh, pretty much everything regarding salvation. There are two aspects to it. There's a positional aspect and then there's a practical aspect. Sanctification probably illustrates this more vividly than anything else. We all, as believers in Christ, enjoy positional sanctification. We have been made clean. We have been cleansed from sin by virtue of our position in Christ. In the New Testament, all believers are called saints. That literally means sanctified or holy ones. We do not have to develop holiness by our own self-effort and self-denial. We are born into it by means of the new birth. Paul says that Jesus Christ is made unto us both righteousness and sanctification. Sanctification simply means that we are set apart for God. But the other side of the coin is practical sanctification. God's demand upon us that is that we, as his children, separate ourselves from evil things and ways. This is something that we must cultivate and pursue diligently. It is learned behavior. It is made possible by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So in other words, you are clean, but you ought to live clean. You are righteous through Jesus Christ. It's how God views you judicially, but you ought to live righteously. You are holy by the blood of Jesus Christ, but he's also called us unto holiness. So we see what is absolutely required. Sanctification is not optional. But it's a requirement upon believers, not that their salvation is contingent upon practical personal sanctification, but that in regards to how God expects us to live, he expects us to live a sanctified life. And then we see what is absolutely rejected. He says that you should abstain from fornication. As we said, uh, fornication is, is not, you know, abstaining from that is not the totality of sanctification. There's a lot of people that may be sexually pure, but in other ways in their life, they're corrupt in the way they live. But evidently for the church at Thessalonica, this was an issue. And I would say that for many today, it's an issue. It's such an issue. It's destroying homes, destroying marriages, destroying churches, destroying children. And it's something that must be called out. It must be dealt with. We can no longer pull our punches regarding this issue. There's too many lives being destroyed. The word fornication here is the Greek word pornea. Uh, and it's where we get our word pornography from. It refers to all kinds of illicit illicit sexual activity. It includes traffic with harlots, adultery, and premarital sex. The New Testament ethic calls for a total ban of sexual indulgence outside the marriage relationship. No sin is more destructive to the family, more dangerous to health, or more debilitating to spiritual life. The Holy Spirit warns us in the book of Hebrews that marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. So we see the need for sanctification. Number two, we see the need for subjugation. Verse four, he says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. In other words, the believer should learn to control his body. It is to be kept clean. Uh, some scholars think that the word vessel here is referring to a man's wife, and certainly there can be some truth to that. Uh, we live, and, and I'm not going to be graphic, I'm not going to be lewd, uh, but we live in a day today where oftentimes even men are encouraging uncleanness in the marital relationship. What a wicked thing that is. What an ugly thing that is. What a vile thing that is. And what a thing of regret that will be one day. But in any case, each believer is to exercise self-control over their life. And I would say in our life, and boy, this is going to be something that, that hits home, I think, to all of us to some degree in some aspect in some way. But if we're not being controlled, if we're being controlled by something other than God, then we're not under God's control. 
Now, that hurts. Next time you go through the drive-thru, you're probably not going to want to think about that, right? Uh, you know, next time that, uh, you know, we just got through drinking eight gallons of coffee, amen? And, and I would say that none of those things are intrinsically wrong in and of themselves, but we do need to understand that as believers, we ought to place ourselves under the mastery of God and of nothing else. We ought to make sure that He has total control of our life and of our being. It reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You remember he says in verse 25, Every man that striveth for the mastery, he's using an illustration here of an Olympic uh, athlete, every man that striveth for the mastery, he says, is temperate in all things. Now, temperate means to have control. Is temperate in all things. He says, now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, that Stephanos, that Greek laurel around their head. But we, an incorruptible, one that doesn't pass away. Paul says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. I'm not out of control in the way I live my life. But he says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. So in other words, we, if we're going to be sanctified believers, we have to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, allow God to have mastery over ourselves. And then we see the need for separation. Verse number five, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. And he speaks of how we need to allow our lives to be separated from the standard that's set by two different things, an internal and an external. The first is lustful passion. He says the lust of concupiscence. We are not to regard the body as an instrument of self-gratification in any way. And by the way, that doesn't just apply to uh, sexual sins, but to anything. That's not what your body's for. Your body is not here for your pleasure. It is here for God's glory. That's why it exists. This, Paul says, is what the pagans who have no knowledge of God do. Uh, knowing God, or to put it another way, knowing Lord Jesus is what makes the difference in our lives. To know Him is to love Him, and to love Him is to want to please Him. To please Him, we must keep our body clean. I thought this was interesting. Listen carefully to this. We are tripartite beings. Each of us has a body designed to be the vehicle of the senses. Because we live in a body, we can see, hear, smell, taste, and feel. Each of us has a soul. We can think, feel, and decide. We are aware of ourselves as individuals. We also have a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. We can be controlled by our senses, our intellect, our emotions, our wills, or our conscience. Or we can be controlled by a combination of these things. God created us to be much more than intelligent animals. We were created with a spirit, the faculty that enables us to know, love, and obey God. Animals are controlled by instinct. But we are to be controlled by God. We were created to be inhabited by God. The human spirit was to be inhabited by the Holy Spirit and cooperate completely with the Holy Spirit. The fall changed all of that. When Adam sinned, the Holy Spirit vacated the human spirit, leaving man without the divine direction and drive needed to live according to God's plan. And now our empty and yearning spirits can never find rest apart from God. Now, of course, all that is changed by the new birth. We're indwelt again by the Spirit of God and we have satisfaction in Christ. Without that, people to seek, seek to fill that internal void with religion, education, pleasure, sex, ambition, power, and human love and affection. Paul says that's not what we were created for. We were not created to be vessels of pleasure for our own gratification in any respect, but rather we're here for the glory of God, to be inhabited and governed and controlled by God for His pleasure. Not only lustful passion, but we're to separate from the standards set by lost people as well. He says, even as the Gentiles which know not God. The Gentiles, which know not God here, are lost people. They are spiritually dead. When we accept Christ, however, we are born again, born of the Spirit, born from above. 
The Holy Spirit once more takes up His abode within so that we can once again be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the indwelling Holy Spirit who makes it possible for the regenerated believer to keep his body as a sacred vessel and not defile it by sin. Because we know God, a clear-cut line of separation must exist between our behavioral standards and those of these Gentiles which know not God. Again, that's, it's not generic language, it's descriptive given that context and that time, but for our day, uh, we would be speaking of lost people when we, when we talked about that. You know, Paul, he challenged the Romans to present their bodies to God, he said, and he added, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, the world around us wants to force on us its standards. Instead, we must let God fashion our minds from within. Shouldn't be the external pressures of society, but the internal witness and life of God in us that dictates how we live. So, immorality is a sin against God the Father. Not only that, it's a sin against God the Son. He says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. God draws the line beyond which we are not to go, and the line is simple. Uh, no relations outside of marriage. No sexual activity outside of marriage. To go, to go beyond that is to defraud somebody. The word for go beyond is hooperbino, which literally means to step over. In other words, God has written a no trespassing uh, over every man or woman who is not one's own wife or husband. He has done more. He has posted the warning trespassers will be prosecuted. I almost changed that to shot, but I thought that might be a little strong. The word for defraud... <laughs> is uh, the word pleonectio, uh, and it means to wrong or to overreach. The idea is that of crossing over a forbidden frontier, trespassing on territory that is clearly posted out of bounds. You know, this is one of the things when you teach your young people. I know a lot of people in this room, your, your, your child-rearing days are, are past, but let me just say for my own edification, uh, you know, we ought to be teaching kids that uh, their body does not belong to them. Uh, we have, as we have become a more godless society, the view has been, for instance, fathers with daughters or, or fathers with sons that, you know, well, if, if, if you were to, uh, you know, lay your hands on my child, then you've offended me. Well, that may be true, but let me tell you, beyond that, it's offended God. And God's the one with whom we have to do. We need to be teaching our children. Their body doesn't belong to us necessarily as parents. We're stewards and wards over their raising. But their body doesn't belong to them either. Uh, listen, I know right now in these days of vaccine mandates we're all saying my body, my choice. But really as a believer what the answer is, is it's God's body. It belongs to Him. It's His choice, not society's body. It's God's body. Uh, and then it's not mine. It belongs to the Lord. I am His vessel. So he talks about the sin that he's dealing with. And then he talks about the sword that God wields in light of this. He says, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you, and testified. The word for avenger is akitikos, and it is used of one who exacts a penalty from a person. The only other place where the word is used in connection is in connection with a civilian magistrate in the Bible described by Paul as a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. The Lord Jesus is the one who deals out judgment to those who transgress God's moral laws. Both sternness and severity are in God's dealings with His people as well as goodness and grace. Punishment for sexual sin is severe. It might take the form of unbearable feelings of guilt that haunt the transgressor and spoil all of his or her legitimate relationships. It might take the form of exposure and shame. It might take the form of disease. It might take the form of one's own wicked behavior being reproduced by one's own children. The defrauded person, the one whose wife or husband has been seduced, might take vengeance into his or her own hands. 
God has no lack of means, physical, psychological, or spiritual, to punish the transgressor. The word testified that Paul used is interesting. It's an intensified form of the usual word. Uh, In other words, it has the idea of earnestly testifying. The rich man in hell used the word first. He pleaded with Abraham to send Lazarus to preach to his five brothers. Uh, He said, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, plead with them, lest they also uh, come into this torment. Same word is used to describe Peter's efforts on the day of Pentecost to persuade the Jews to repent and accept Christ. says, with many other words, did he testify and exhort. In other words, Paul was pleading with them to repent of and forsake this most dangerous and destructive activity. And then we see, not only is it a sin against the Father and the Son, but it's a sin against the Holy Spirit. He said, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who also hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Uh, first, he speaks about the rule that, that is involved with this, that sets the precedent. Uh, he says, God hath not called us. The rule of living, the standard of living, is not uncleanness, but rather holiness. God sees all men as being either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam, we are controlled by the fall. In Christ, we are controlled by the call. Controlled by the dynamics of the fall, we obey the dictates of a ruined nature. Controlled by the dynamics of the call, we obey the dictates of a redeemed nature. The characteristics of our ruined nature is sin. The characteristic of our redeemed nature is sanctification, holiness, because God has not called us unto uncleanness. Uncleanness is what we inherit by reason of our natural birth, but God has called us unto holiness. That is what we inherit by reason of our new birth. The natural man delights in vileness, but the new man delights in virtue. In our daily lives and in our character, conduct, and conversation, we exhibit either the results of the fall or the results of the call. It's impossible for our Adamic nature to be holy. It is impossible for the Christ nature to be unclean. Whether the fall of man or the call of God controls us hinges on which nature we obey, and the decision is always ours. In other words, it's never the will of God for us to participate in uncleanness, but his rule of living is always holiness. Then we talk about the rebellion that's involved. Verse number 8, He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man but God. The word for despiseth here is the word aphetio, and it means to displace or to set aside and to reject. Uh, it's used in Hebrews 10.28. It means to set it not there. He that despised Moses' law, set it at not, died without mercy. The Lord used the word to convey the thought of rejecting. He said, he that heareth you, heareth me. And he that despiseth, that same word, you, despiseth, that same word, me. And he that despiseth, the same word, me, despiseth, the same word, him that sent me. In other words, to reject the truth of. Uh, all who engage in this activity outside the bonds of marriage show by their behavior that they reject God's requirement of purity. They set it not his instruction and warning. Paul says, it's not me that you're rejecting. It's not the other apostles and it is not man, but it's God that you set at not. In other words, it is an act of rebellion against God's order of things. And then we see the rejection that's involved. Who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. And this is why it's a sin against the Spirit of God. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the one that makes it possible for a believer to live a chaste life. In our ignorance and inexperience, we might grieve him at times, but he'll warn us. We might skate on some thin ice at times, but he'll warn us. But let us beware of persisting in our rejection of his conviction and his dealing. We might go too far. The Holy Spirit is holy. He is holy. He's grieved when we live in an unholy way. God has called us to holiness, and the Holy Spirit is outraged when we defile our body, His temple, 
by sin. So we see our moral purity spoken of. Then he talks about our measured progress. He says, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Paul says love here in stark, staring contrast to lust. Lust has no part in Christian life, but love is everything. He talks about love being taught. He says you're taught of God to love one another. And he carefully here uses the word Philadelphia. Now let me just make this statement. There has sometimes been too much made over the distinctions between the various Greek words used for love in the Bible. Uh, for instance, people want to say, well, every time the word agape is used, it's speaking of divine love. And every time the word Philadelphia is used, it's speaking of Philadelphian love. I found this to be true. There are times that the word agape is used to speak of, of familial or friendly love. It, it's not a, it's not a, a universal rule. Neither is it meaningless that Paul uses this word that means to love one another as a brother. He used this word to underline the kind of love that believers are to demonstrate towards each other. Love is expressed in deeds, not just in words. It's the evidence of genuine faith. So he's been pointing at what the world calls love and saying that's not love, that's lust. But he's saying what you need in your life towards other believers is love. Uh, nobody had to teach the Thessalonians to love one another. God himself taught them that behavior. The obligation to love one's neighbor is revealed in the Old Testament. God is love. It is an expression of his character. Love for one's fellow Christian is proof of the new birth and possession of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit even develops this kind of love in his own. You remember the book of Romans says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So in other words, Paul says concerning this saying of, of, of affection towards each other, loving one another... Uh, that's not a problem. You're doing that in the right way, but there are some wrong things that are present in your behavior as well. Uh, and then he talks about love wrought in their lives. He says, And indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. So Paul says you're, you're doing the right thing. You're abiding in love. But while you're abiding in love, you almost be, must also be abounding in love because that too is the nature of love. Uh, I like the way that one commentator put it. it. says, love can never be content with what it has given. It has to give more. It does not set quotas, and it does not quit. Certainly we see that concerning charity spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. It says, charity suffereth long, in verse 4, and is kind. It envieth not, it vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, uh, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Then it says charity never faileth. Now, that doesn't mean that charity, that love never makes a mistake. But what it means is that the call upon us to love one another is something that will never cease. Uh, there's never going to come a time when God says you no longer have to love one another as Christians. That will always be the case. Some of us are going to have to figure out how we're going to get along with people. Amen. Because we're going to have to. Amen. Charity never faileth. So we see our measured progress spoken of. And then our manifest purpose. Verses 11 and 12, he says, And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. In this, uh, Paul deals with what evidently had arisen as a problem in the church at Thessalonica. He talks about our manifest purpose, first off, toward temperamental things. He says, study to be quiet. The word for study here is the word philotomeomai, and Paul used it to describe his efforts to plant the gospel in fields that were not yet evangelized. He says, so, I have, so have I strived, that same word, to preach the gospel. 
carries the idea of earnestly endeavoring to accomplish a goal. It means to be ambitious, to love, honor, esteem, or to make it a point of honor. Our ambition, then, is to be quiet. Uh, the word for quiet here is the word hezekazo, and it is used to describe the cessation of activity by the women who were busy about the burial of Christ. It says they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested. Same word, the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Uh, it's sometimes presented to us as they held their peace in the Bible. The Holy Spirit calls for something that is the very opposite of the spirit of the age. In the world, people are ambitious to make money, achieve business success, and ascend the social ladder. We urge our children to succeed. I thought this was interesting. Only one time in the Bible is there a reference to success. And it has to do with the kind of life that results from meditation on the Word of God in Joshua chapter number 1 and verse number 8. Only time the word success is used, it's used in the context of knowing and doing the Word of God. The danger, in other words, is that a worldly spirit might invade Christians and the church. Study to be quiet, Paul says. Make it your ambition to stay out of the limelight. Uh, one commentator paraphrased it this way. Make it your ambition to have no ambition. Now, we have to be careful with that. Obviously, God doesn't expect us to not, uh, you know, do a good job and not be honorable in what we do. And in fact, Paul's going to rebuke that here in a moment. But the purpose of our life is not to accrue to us as much glory as possible. He says, your job is not to create a clamor, uh, but rather to live the life that God has called you to in obedience and in honor unto Him. And he goes to expand that. Uh, he talks about our manifest purpose towards temperamental things, but then towards temporal things. He says, and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Now, why is Paul writing this? Evidently, this was a problem at the church at Thessalonica. Why had this problem arisen? Well, uh, think of it this way. The gospel does not encourage people to be idle. Paul and Silas had set a good example when they were among them. Paul was always willing to engage in hard work to support not only himself, but also others in the missionary party when necessary. A heightened expectancy of the second coming of Christ seems to have encouraged some Thessalonian Christians to idleness and disincline them to attend to their business affairs. Such has happened frequently over the centuries, and it's often associated with the pernicious and unscriptural practice of setting dates for the Lord's return. I was going to go down and read it. There's a bunch of examples of that, but we can probably all remember some examples of that where people, uh, you know, got it in their head, Christ is coming back on such and such a date, and people went out and they sold their stuff, and they stood out in the desert and stared up at the heavens. And evidently that attitude was beginning to infect the church at Thessalonica where they weren't attending to their responsibilities. Paul rebukes this. Uh, the timing of the second coming of Christ was high priority news at Thessalonica. And Paul had more to say about this in his second epistle to them. Here Paul simply reminds them that prophecy is not an excuse for laziness, apathy, or irresponsibility. He says you need to make sure that you're maintaining your obligations in as much as they don't conflict with your responsibilities to God. So he gives a word about our work, and then he gives a word about our walk, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without. The call is for Christians to ensure that they have a reputation for honesty in the outside world. Uh, the word uh, for honesty comes from a word meaning elegant in person and bearing. Uh, that summons to us a picture of a person who's graceful and poised and well-balanced. Such a person does not stumble and blunder and have to apologize all the time. The word came to refer one's outward deportment. It's used in this way in Romans 13.13 13, in contrast to the riotous living of the law. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 14.40, Paul concludes his correction of the flagrant errors and abuses of the gifts of tongues by saying, let all things be done decently. Same word, and in order. 
When Paul told his readers to walk honestly toward them that are without, he was demanding that Christians so behave that lost people might never have grounds to challenge a believer's testimony. Our beliefs and behavior should go beyond, should be beyond reproach. We should never have to apologize for things that we have said and done uh, that are that are erroneous. Of course, we all make mistakes. I don't think Paul is suggesting we have to be perfect, but he's saying our goal should be to live uh, with a testimony that is above reproach. Uh, with this, one thinks of the jobs and sarcasm that's leveled against the evangelical church in America by the media as a result of these date setters in moderate, erroneous, and widely publicized views. You know what happens to those people that get bought into that is the six o'clock news comes by, takes a bunch of film, and everybody sits around saying, well, that's what a Christian believes. And of course, that's not the case, not a biblical view, uh, but nevertheless, it brings shame on the name of Christ. Paul says, you need to make sure that in your devotion to Christ, you're not doing anything that gives them a reason uh, to justly criticize the testimony of the Christian. Then he gives a word about our wealth, and this is sort of in the same vein. Along with the good news that Timothy brought back, he seems to have brought back some bad news as well. True, they had a keen interest in prophecy. However, some believers had taken the imminence of the Lord's return so literally that they had stopped going to work and were idling around waiting for the second coming. Some of them, carried away by enthusiasm, might have even sold their property and become destitute. Now they had become a burden to their brethren and a mockery to the unsaved. Paul wrote sharply to address such behavior. A believer is to be a profitable and productive member of society, not a drone, always sponging and taking advantage of other people's charity. Paul offers a timely word for those who would prefer to live on welfare and charity than get a job that are able to and pay their own way. God wants us to lack nothing, but he also expects us to do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Now, let's read these last few verses, and there's a distinct shift in tone here, and so I wanted to bust this up for that reason. In verse number 13, Paul says this, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I could almost quote that. I've preached at so many funerals. No doubt you've heard it at a lot of funerals. There have been essentially five different thoughts that Paul has dealt with in this chapter. Our mighty potential in verses 1 and 2, our moral purity in verses 3 through 8, our measured progress in verses 9 and 10, our manifest purpose in verses 11 and 12. But now in this last ensemble of verses, he deals with our magnificent prospect. Paul has now arrived at the central truth of this great epistle a thrilling and comprehensive revelation of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. The inspired writers regarded the second coming of Christ as an important truth. It is mentioned some 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, an average of one reference in every 25 verses. In the Old Testament, the majority of prophecies relating to the Messiah have to do with his second coming. Charles E. Fuller used to say of this great passage, our text, that it is Paul's exposition of John 14, 1 through 3. I thought this was interesting. You remember, the Lord Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. 
The Lord's words, I will come again, are matched by Paul's explanation, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. The Lord's promise, I will receive you unto myself, is matched by Paul's explanation, then we shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. The Lord's statement that where I am, there ye may be also, is matched by Paul's statement, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And the Lord's announcement, let not your heart be troubled, is matched by Paul's, wherefore comfort one another with these words. This remarkable passage from verse 13 of chapter 4 down to verse number 10 of chapter 5 reveals five facts about the rapture. Underlining some key words in this Bible passage can emphasize these facts. Number one, the second coming of Christ is a positive truth. You can find this by underlining the repeated use of the words shall and shall not in these verses. Not only that, it's a personal truth. You can find that by underlining the words we, ye, us, I, and you in these verses. It is a pivotal truth. You can underline the word but four times in this uh, passage. It's a progressive truth. You can underline the word for in this passage as well. And it is a practical truth. You can underline the words wherefore and therefore in this passage too. The Thessalonians had welcomed Paul's teaching on the second coming of Christ. They had been intrigued by it. They wished that Paul had been able to stay longer and teach them more about it. With the passing of time, however, doubts and questions had begun to arise in their minds, especially about those who had died since Paul had left. Had these loved ones missed the rapture? The era of the church at Thessalonica was very, very simple. Uh, there were people that were teaching that only by means of the rapture could a believer be caught up with the Lord. In other words, they were denying the imminent resurrection that would accompany the rapture. And it left them scratching their heads because they thought, well, what does this mean? We have loved ones that have died. What, where are they now? And what does that mean for them? Have they missed the rapture because they've died before it has occurred? And Paul, really in writing these two epistles, writes to deal with this very issue. In our text, he deals with three different thoughts. Number one, he deals with those who are asleep. What then does happen to those who put their faith in Christ but who die before the Lord returns? In this, Paul reveals three things to answer that question. First, we see our feelings are reviewed. He says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Death is indeed a hopeless tragedy for those who were outside of Christ, uh, regarding both those who die and those who are left behind to mourn. We've all attended funerals, and as we stand before the casket and gaze into the cold, calm face of the person lying there, we confront the terrible finality of death. We're confronted, too, with the utter insolvency of the human race. The philosopher comes, and he expounds his thoughts and theories concerning death. He quotes from the sages of the past, none of whom could speak with authority as to the reason for death or say with authority what lies beyond. Here reason ends and revelation must be. Nor has any of the philosophers been able to come back from the grave to tell us what their, whether their fine arguments were borne out by the actual article of death itself. The scientist then comes and he says, I'm sorry, my friend, I did my best. I trained your doctor, equipped your hospital, I provided you with the best of medicines, but I failed. Nor can any scientist tell me how to bring you back to life, despite all that we know about cells, genes, chromosomes, and DNA. We've removed your name from our list of patients. We've failed you at the last. The family then comes, and there stands the weeping mother and the broken-hearted father. They cry like David, my son, my son, would God that I had died for you, my son. For those who are outside of Christ, death is final, cold, cruel, callous, and utterly uncaring. It's ugly, menacing, and inescapable. Paul calls it the last enemy. When he arrives, it's all over. The only consolation we have, though, is in the Word of God. We have God's Word for it, 
that for the believer, all is well. Ye sorrow not, Paul says, even as others which have no hope. Indeed, he deliberately describes death as sleep. We actually court sleep, or I did before I had kids. We sorrow, he says, but we have God's word for it that our loved ones are only asleep. By the way, a reference to the state of the body. The soul does not sleep, the body does. The soul is made of the same stuff as eternity. It never gets tired, never gets old, never gets ill, and never sleeps. But the body of the departed believer is asleep. Jesus said the same thing of Lazarus and declared his intention of going to Bethany to awaken him. Outside of divine revelation, we have no word to comfort us when death strikes. We can take secular society word for it, that there is no God, no heaven, no hell, no truth to Christianity, or we can take Paul's word for it, the word of an anointed apostle of God. Indeed, Paul was speaking under direct revelation and inspiration. He said, we speak this to you by the word of the Lord. We sorrow, says Paul. He would not rob the Thessalonians of their tears. We do not pretend that death does not bring loss and, and tears. We sorrow, yes but not as others who have no hope. God is the only one with authority to speak on the reality of death and what comes afterwards. There are some things that just simply are outside the purview of what uh, philosophy and science and, and things like that can deal with. They can't speak to the metaphysical, not, not experientially, but the divine Word of God can, and it gives us an answer for our uh, devastation and our mourning. We see that our feelings are reviewed, then our faith is reviewed. It says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. The if here is not the if of doubt. It, it has the idea of sense. The hypothesis is assumed to be an actual fact. You see Paul use this language in 1 Corinthians as well when he says, if the dead be not raised, if Christ be not risen. He's not saying we don't know. He's saying we're assuming that to be the fact. We know this to be true. And that then leads us to certain conclusions. There are four conditional if structures in the Greek language. The first class is used here, and it means since, because it assumes the certainty, not the contingency. The second class if means if it were so, but it is not so. It assumes contrary to the fact. The third class if means more likely, and the assumption is that it is most likely. The fourth, the fourth class if means more remote and least likely. Here, Paul does not cast doubt upon their belief in the resurrection of Christ. He takes that for granted. Then comes that grand and glorious certainty, the bedrock of all our hope. Jesus died and rose again. Indeed, no fact in all of history is greater. More evidence exists for the resurrection of Christ than for the conquest of Britain by Julius Caesar. This thing was not done in a corner, Paul declared to Festus and King Agrippa. The facts concerning Jesus were public knowledge. Jesus died and rose again. It is the central truth of the gospel. I don't have time to do it. I have to preach a separate message. But if you just go through systematically and rationally the argument for the resurrection of Christ, it has far more historical evidence and far more rational basis than a great many of the things we accept as being true according to history's witness. The phrase even so here suggests an exact parallel. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For instance, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Having indicated the parallel between Christ's resurrection now past and our resurrection still pending, Paul now points us to another parallel. He says, them also which sleep in Jesus. Death is likened to sleep. Nothing is strange or scary about that. For the Christian, dying is not to be feared any more than is sleeping. 
When the time comes to die, I thought this was a sweet way to put it, when the time comes to die, we shall be safe in the arms of Jesus. He'll tuck us in until morning comes. Then when He comes, He will bring us with Him. In other words, the soul is immediately present with God. The action from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that body, that shell, is put into a sleep. It is laid in the ground. Then He talks about our future being reviewed. He says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. The teaching now to be given is new. Paul received it by direct personal revelation of the Lord himself. He calls it the word of the Lord. It's absolutely reliable. Here we have a guarantee backed by God's own word. The dead in Christ shall rise. The resurrection of the Christ unconditionally guarantees the resurrection of the Christian. The truth of the rapture is confirmed to us by the resurrection of Christ. His resurrection demonstrates that our resurrection is not only entirely possible, but an absolute certainty. Here it is also confirmed to us by the reliability of God. There is not the slightest shadow of doubt about it. God's integrity is beyond all question. His word is his bond. Paul says to them, those that have died in Christ will rise again. We don't prevent them. We don't keep them from raising from the dead. In other words, our living, our being here, God creating and allowing us to be here, uh, meaning the rapture has not taken place, the prophetic timetable of God has not yet marched on, that's not going to stop God from fulfilling the promises that were made to those believers that have died in the Lord as well. Then he speaks of those who will arise. We see the revelation expanded here, and he, he mentions three things. He says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with three things, one with a shout, two with the voice of the archangel, and three with the trump of God. This speaks to three different groups of humanity. Uh, the shout is for the church, the voice is for the world, and the trump is for the Jewish nation. The shout means the rapture uh, for the church. It summons the saints to glory. One of the great mysteries of the past 2,000 years has been the total and lasting silence of God. The world has been racked by terrible wars, and God has remained silent. Fearing inju fearful injustices plague society, and God is silent. Domestic tragedies occur, and God is silent. Famines wipe out whole populations. Pestilences, plagues, earthquakes, tornadoes, volcanic eruptions, and God is silent. Persecutions, holocausts, crimes, and atrocities are committed, and God is silent. Wicked men grow rich on the misery of others, trading in alcohol, drugs, and sex, and empires are built and sustained on syndicated crime, and God is silent. Regimes have flourished on the systematic enslavement and exploitation of millions, and God is silent. False religions hold other millions in soul-damning spiritual darkness, and God is silent. The great cry of humanity is why? Why is God silent? Why doesn't he act? Why doesn't he speak? The answer is simple. He has. He has spoken. He's displayed his might and miracle on an unprecedented scale on this planet. He has intervened. He did so 2,000 years ago. What the world is witnessing in this mysterious silence is the infinite patience of God. When God breaks this silence, it will be with a shout. He has spoke once in grace by sending his son to this planet, and they murdered him. He sent his spirit, and the world ignores him. The next time, he will speak in wrath. The whole creation today is holding its breath, waiting for that shout. Jesus is waiting for the moment when he can descend the stellar spaces, burst through the clouds of the sky, and give that shout. We hear this shout three times in Scripture, and each time the gates of death are breached. The first time was at the tomb of Lazarus. It says, when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. The second time this shout was heard was from the cross. Matthew tells us 
that Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. It goes on to say that graves were open, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. The first time one man was raised. The second time many were raised. Paul recorded in this letter to the Thessalonians that the third time that the shout occurs, there will follow a wholesale exodus from the tomb. This mighty shout will ring out across five continents and seven seas, and the dead in Christ shall rise. For the first time in history, the whole church, universal, militant, and triumphant, will be seen. Every member will be present. As Moses said to Pharaoh when he was defining who should participate in the exodus out of Egypt, he said, there shall not an hoof be left behind. The same principle applies in the rapture. It is to be a raptured church, not a ruptured church, with some of its members left behind to face the horrors of the Great Tribulation. The church will be seen to be perfect. Our meeting with the Lord in the clouds will take care of all spots and blemishes. The judgment seat of Christ will ensure that. All imperfections will be removed. When the marriage, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the angel hosts proclaim, here comes the bride. We can be sure of this. She will not come in on a crutch or blind in one eye and with a leg and an arm missing. The church will be complete. The most beautiful eye-catching sight in the universe. So we have the uh, shout for the church. Then the voice for the world. The voice of the archangel means the ruin of the world. That voice sends the angels forth to war. Rapture means that the amnesty is over, that God has broken off diplomatic relations with the world that murdered his son. For long centuries now, the warrior angels have been straining over the battlements of heaven, so to speak, eager to avenge the terrible wrongs that the wicked children of Adam's race inflicted on their beloved on planet Earth. But the angels have been held back by sovereign grace. Now, however, the archangel comes to the fore. So do the angels. During this age, ministering spirits are here to serve the Lord's people. Now come the martial angels, led by Michael, the archangel of glory. Throughout the apocalypse, angels are prominent. They sound the trumpets, pour out the vials, and issue warnings and proclamations. This sudden outbreak of angelic activity is heralded by the voice of the archangel. The removal of the church has cleared the way. Now the angels can go to war. And then we see the trump of God. Me and Tom were speaking about this for a moment earlier. Oftentimes, mid-tribulationists will point to this, as well as 1 Corinthians 15, and say, well, see, it says, at the last trump. It'll say, with the trump of God. So it must be speaking about the trumpets of judgment in the book of Revelation. The only problem is, don't tell Paul that, because that was not known when Paul pinned that down. You always have to take into account when you're studying Scripture, what could a person have been aware of? None of these trumpets were revealed until John received them in 90 A.D. on the Isle of Patmos. When Paul wrote about trumpets, he was writing about something he knew about, and he was writing about something that the people to whom he was writing to could be expected to know about and understand. How would any of this be possible when John had not yet even received this statement about the trumpets in the book of Revelation? However, trumpets did have a connotation in the mind of Paul and in the mind of those that would have been receiving his letter. The trump of God meant repatriation for Israel. It sounds the alarm for the Jews. Once the church age is complete, the focus of God's dealings reverts to the nation of Israel. The church age is a parenthesis in God's dealings with mankind. The church was injected supernaturally into history on the day of Pentecost. And it's to be supernaturally ejected back out of history at the rapture. At that point, God will resume his Old Testament dealings with the nation of Israel and will fulfill the many prophecies concerning Israel, which is still awaiting their time. The nation of Israel has been reborn in our own day, a significant event relative to the end time. Only a trickle of Jews has so far returned. The flood tide has not yet begun. We know that to be true. 
a small, very small portion of the Jews in this world are in Israel. Most of them are still scattered throughout. The trumpet will summon them back. Trumpets were used throughout Israel's Old Testament history. When the law was given at Sinai, it was accompanied by the sound of a supernatural trumpet. Two silver trumpets were used to direct Israel's activities in the wilderness. They were used in connection with warning, worship, war, and Israel's walk. The fall of Jericho was in response to the sounding of trumpets. The Jews kept an annual feast of trumpets. It followed Pentecost after the last of a period of time. It was preceded by the fast of atonement and the millennium picturing feast of tabernacles. Trumpets are primarily connected with the nation of Israel. They are secondarily connected with the rapture of the church. Paul shows here that the rapture of the church is the catalyst to precipitate other end-time events. It's always been the case that in the Jewish mind, the, is, uh, the, the trumpet meant it was time to move. And in Paul writing this, when he talks about the trump of God, what he's saying is that God's dealings with the church culminate with the shout. God's dealings with the world commence with the voice of the archangel. And God's dealings with Israel recommence with the trump of God being blown. Then we see the resurrection that's expected. He says, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. When this rapture takes place, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Paul now reaffirms that the resurrection is expected. The dead in Christ shall rise first, he says. That should be sufficient answer to the concern of the Christians at Thessalonica about their deceased loved ones. They had not missed the rapture. On the contrary, they would have priority. They would actually rise first. Then he speaks to those who are alive. Finally, Paul has a word for all of those who are alive on the earth when the rapture takes place. Paul always puts himself in this class. Note the use of the word we, we which are alive and remain. He lives in eager expectation of being caught up at any moment. The rapture is always presented to us thus as being imminent, something that could happen at any time. Any position on the second coming of Christ that takes the edge off our expectancy and intrudes all kinds of prior events between the believer and the rapture is a wrong position. The element of surprise is a key element in all New Testament teaching regarding the rapture. Hence the repeated exhortations that we be watchful throughout the word of God. So then in contrast with the actual return of the Lord to set up his kingdom on earth, which is a dated event seven years after the signing of the Antichrist Treaty with Israel and 1260 days after the breaking of that treaty in the book of Daniel, book of Revelation, you find that the rapture of the church is a secret event. We do not know its hour, its day, its year, its season, or its watch. The Lord elaborated on our ignorance of the actual watch that would witness his return. He said in Luke 12, if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, watching that is, blessed are those servants. Each night was comprised of four watches. The first watch has some of the preceding day's alertness about it. The sun's going down. And the fourth watch has the approaching day's expectancy about it. You can see, see the light starting to break. But the second and third watches are when wakefulness and watchfulness are at their lowest ebb. The Lord could have come at any moment in the past 2,000 years. He could come at any moment now. He speaks of two things here. One, he speaks of our promised rapture. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We which are alive and remain, Paul says. He draws attention to this promised rapture. Caught up is the phrase that he used. We'll be caught up together. The word is harpazo. It means literally to snatch away. The word is used to describe Philip's sudden disappearance after he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. 
It's also used to describe Paul's rapturous experience of things untranslatable in 2 Corinthians. The meaning of the word includes the idea of the events being accomplished suddenly and by force. The word can convey the idea of a loving reaching out, of taking hold, of lifting up. It's used of the soul winners pulling lost people out of the fire in Jude verse 23. In a completely contrasting setting, it's used to describe the activity of the wicked one who snatcheth away the good seed sown in the heart of those who hear the word of God but who are careless about its truth. It's used to describe the way the soldiers rescued Paul from the mob in the temple. Their commander told them to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. In like manner, we are going to be snatched away before the end-time judgments fall upon this planet. We shall be caught up together with the resurrected saints. In a later revelation, Paul elaborates on the changes that will take place to our natural bodies. We'll receive a body that is engineered for eternity, capable of annihilating the restrictions of time and space. It will be incorruptible, a body of power, triumphant over all its current weaknesses and limitations. It will be a heavenly body, immortal and spiritual, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. Paul adds that it will be like Christ's resurrection body in Philippians chapter 3. John agrees in 1 John chapter 3, says we shall be like him. Suddenly, the pull of glory will exert its power and the church will be gone. Nature provides us with two illustrations of this. Think, for instance, of the lowly caterpillar. It lives out its life on earth as a grub, earth bound and rooted to the dust. It lifts its little head and stares at the vast expanse of the sky. It thinks, I wish I could fly. If only I had wings, I would catch the rising air currents and wing my way from tree to tree. But I'm only a wretched grub with a lot of legs crawling up and down the trunks of these trees. Then comes a change. The caterpillar knows what the, the change is coming and prepares for it. Makes itself a little coffin, a chrysalis attached to a twig and crawls inside. Then it dies to the only life it has ever known. Time comes and goes, and still that silken coffin holds its content. Then comes a call that we can't hear. Suddenly that caterpillar bursts out of its tomb, and wonder of wonders, it has been changed. It entered that silken coffin as a caterpillar. It emerges as a butterfly. It's the same creature that comes out of that chrysalis that goes into it, but it is so radically changed that we hardly recognize the two as being one. The transformed creature spreads its wings and soars upwards, to the sky in a blaze of raised glory. The same kind of thing is going to happen to us. Sown in dishonor, Paul says, and raised in glory. The God who keeps faith with the caterpillar will keep faith with us. The other illustration is just as remarkable. Suppose that we were to take a mixture of metals and scatter them, burying some of them, strewing others over the ground here and there. We disperse gold and silver, copper and zinc, iron and tin. Then we take a powerful electromagnetic magnet and pass it over the area where the mixture of metals is scattered. Immediately the magnet draws to itself just one kind of metal. It attracts only the iron, be it buried or still on the surface of the soil. It leaves behind all of the rest, the gold, the copper, the silver, all of it is left. The question is, why does the magnet draw to itself just the iron? Well, the answer is simple high school physics. It draws the iron because the iron has the same nature as the magnet itself. Just so at the rapture, the Lord will draw to himself only those who have the same nature as himself. It matters not whether we are rich or poor, clever or ignorant, wise or foolish, black or white, prince or pauper, alive or dead. All that matters is that we have become partakers of the divine nature. So shall we ever be with the Lord, Paul says, and so we shall. It will take all of eternity to enter into the joy and wonder of that fact. He speaks then finally of our present rest. He says, wherefore comfort one another with these words. And what comforting words they are. We read them at every funeral. I do. None of the world's religion has their life. None of their founders came back from the dead. 
Only Jesus can give the comfort and assurance that we have in this, our blessed hope, of thus being forever with both our departed loved ones and the Lord. The word for comfort here is a variety of meanings. It's akin to John's favorite word for the Holy Spirit, the comforter. And that suggests an interesting thought. Think about this. You know, one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is a dove. The Holy Spirit is the dove of God. You know, a dove has a strong homing instinct. When he is received into a human heart, he brings that homing instinct with him. He heads us towards home. We long for home. At the time of the rapture, he'll simply be called home and he'll pick us up, living or dead, and take us there to the accompanying shout, trump, or voice.